Amen. I pray that I may not weep through this because we're looking at an issue which breaks the heart of God, that He weeps. And if you linger in His presence long enough, as most of you know, your heart tends to weep with the things that cause Him to weep. This morning, we're looking at Jesus and racism. As you know, we're in a series called Jesus and, looking at how we as followers of Jesus can follow Him through all the complex and challenging issues that we face today. We've looked at Jesus and justice, Jesus and politics, and this morning we're looking at the important topic of Jesus and race and racism. And I come to it with a heavy heart but a hopeful heart. Because although we've shed tears, particularly over the last 18 months, at the great atrocities of racism in our culture, we also come with hope and joy that in Jesus we see the answer. In Jesus, we see light shining into the darkness. For as Paul said, in Jesus Christ, we are all children of God through faith. That there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for we are all one in Jesus Christ. So I come this morning with a heavy heart, but a hopeful heart. As we look at what it means to be a community of Christ, unified in our diversity unified by faith in Jesus Christ. Before we dig in to the Bible together, I want to give an update, just a brief update on our diversity here at Vintage. We have a diversity team that we assembled about a year ago to 18 months ago to proactively lean into diversity within our community and across our city that we may serve one another. And we had three goals in sorry, four goals in that diversity team that we established for Vintage. The first is diversity within our community, that everyone would feel welcome and included and loved and cherished for the color of their skin in our community, that no one would feel excluded or feeling on the outside. So we have that prayer for our community, and we certainly have that goal and our desire for our staff team and for those on stage that we may together reflect the beauty of our city in our diversity. Secondly, relationships, that we wanted to build relationships with communities of color across our city, and Ted was talking about them, and we've particularly leaned into relationships with four churches we feel God opened the door with, and they are Faithful Central, a majority black church in Inglewood, Tapestry LA, a majority Asian American in downtown LA, Cristiano Ebenezer Church, a majority Latino church in Ball Heights, and Renew LA, a church in Culver City led by our friends Dehan and Julie that is actually forging the path in a multi-ethnic community, which is beautiful to see and much to learn there. So it's wonderful to build these relationships. So excited that we're going to have regular times that we can go and worship with these churches. We'll still have worship here, but if you're able to join Ted and others, you can go worship with one of these churches one Sunday. And we have Bishop Kenneth Ulmer coming January the 9th of Faithful Central. And we're going to not just go visit them, but we'll do life together, do mission together. We're looking at doing Kingdom Comes together, that we may grow in our relationship with them. The third Goal is, is discipleship, that we may grow in what it means to be a church pursuing justice and diversity 
And to that end, we do annually now a study, a Bible study based on a book by Pastor Miles McPherson of the Rock Church San Diego called The Third Option. And many of you were in that last year, wonderful study. We're doing that again in January. And then also we are discipling ourselves by educating ourselves about our city and the rich multicultural, multi-ethnic history of our city that has both joys and pain. And to that end, Ted and our diversity team are arranging walking tours. I love walking tours. And so Ted and the team are putting on walking tours of different communities in our city where we can learn the history as we walk around those communities, meet people there, enjoy the delights of diversity, including food, uh, but also learn as well and pray for our city. And then finally, mission and justice, that we partner with organizations, gospel-centered organizations across our city that seek to bring unity and the hope of Jesus Christ into what our city has so often divided. So this is very much our aim, and that's a bit of an update. As many, many have said, hey, what's an update on our diversity here at Vintage? But this morning, I want to look at two questions in particular, two issues in particular, as we discuss Jesus and racism, or Jesus and race. The first is this, racism and the Bible, and secondly, racism and the mission of the church. The many people taking their view of what to do about racism from secular ideologies, political theories, new political theories, and I'm not going to get into critiquing those. What I want to do as a follower of Jesus, as a teacher in this church, look at actually we take our cue from Jesus. We take our cue from the Bible. And so I'm going to begin with racism and the Bible. The Bible has much to say. A few weeks ago, I spoke on Jesus and the Bible, and we looked at how the Bible is one narrative of the redemptive story of God, and it can be broken up into four chapters, if you will. It's a continuing story divided into four chapters. If you remember, those chapters are creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The unified story of the Bible broken down into this story, and it begins with creation. And we see in creation God's desire for humanity. In Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created humanity in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And so at the heart of humanity, we firstly see that God created one race, the human race. That this unity is at the heart of the agenda for humanity. There are not multiple races. There is one human race. Biology and theology confirm there is one race, the human race. We are all equal in the eyes of God. There is no superior race. There's no hierarchy of races. We are all one. We are all created in the image of God. But that creation is oneness in our diversity. That because we were made in the image of God, we were made to be diverse. The Trinity is diverse. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is diversity in the oneness of the Trinity. And therefore, when it comes to humanity, there is diversity within the one race of humanity. 
That's why we reflect the image of God. And just as God's glory is displayed through the unity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we reflect the glory of God in our differentiated unity. The glory of God is not manifest through monochrome. The glory of God is displayed through diversity because it's diversity that reveals the diversity and the beauty of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So therefore, we were made, some of us, to be tall or short, blonde or dark hair, freckles or not. And beautifully, we were made with different color of our skin. God, the great artist, brings color to the world. It's this richness of diversity that shows the richness of the glory of God. This is the unity in diversity of the human race, made in the image of God, but it didn't last very long because chapter 2 begins in chapter 3 of the Bible. Creation lasted for two chapters, and in chapter 3, we see the next story, which is the fall, where humanity collectively decided, you know what? We don't need God. We're going to do this human project by ourselves. We're going to each be our own gods. We're going to get rid of the king and be kings of our own kingdom. Adam and Eve decided as representatives and, uh, of humanity, you know, we don't need you to define right and wrong. We will define it ourselves. And immediately we see separation from humanity, from God. And the first fruits of that separation, that alienation from God, was alienation between one another. The first fruit of sin was sinful alienation from one another. You remember Genesis chapter 3. Adam says, it's not my fault, it's hers. The very next chapter we see relationships decline into destruction even further. Where Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, my brother's not my problem. And individualism was starting to rear its ugly head. In other words, what the sin of the fall produced was the sin of what scholars called othering. Othering. Where we start to use our differences not in the glorious display of God's glory, but we started to use our differences to feel better about ourselves versus other people. We used these beautiful distinctives to divide and not display the glory of God. You see, this was what sin does. Sin comes into our heart, and we're separated from the identity of being part of God's family. We're separated from the significance of being beloved by Him. We're separated from the meaning and purpose that He has for our lives. And all of a sudden, we are now without these things, and we're trying to find significance, identity, meaning, and value from elsewhere. And one of the ways straight away that humanity tries to fill the void that we've created by rejecting God, this void is filled by looking at others and being better than them. I will push myself up by pushing others down. Othering. Othering is at the heart of sinful humanity. We find our happiness by being happier than others smarter than others, more beautiful than others. We prop up our own ego and our own value by trying to find other people who are less than us. 
with the result that we might feel better about ourselves by being better than others. This is at the heart of the fall. And this otherness can take many different guises. This otherness can reflect in ageism or sexism. It can actually mean that we look down on others because of their economic status or their country of origin or their religion or in England their class. But most tragically, we can look down on people and other based on the color of someone's skin. Racism is one subset, one disastrous evil subset of the evil of otherness. Richard Lovelace, in his amazing book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, said this, people caught up in racism says this, they come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They fix upon their race, or I would say ethnicity, their membership in a party, and their culture as a means of self-recommendation. Otherness is the first fruit of the fall and is toxic in all of our hearts without Jesus. That's why we see otherness throughout the Bible, throughout the fallen story of the Old Testament. We see in the ancient Near East nationalism and tribalism and brutal murders of others who are not of our culture. Even the nation of Israel was enslaved by the nation of Egypt. And throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, we see that this otherness is starting to divide humanity even more and more, where in Luke chapter 18, a Pharisee looks down on others and said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Otherness is a a result of the fall, is a result of the curse of sin that invades all of our hearts. And otherness has three dimensions. Of course, it has the individual dimension of individual prejudice against others. It has the interpersonal where communities oppress and discriminate against one another. And it has institutional ramifications where sinful humanity can create sinful infrastructures, otherwise known as systemic otherness, and in places of racism, systemic racism. We see this even in the Bible, Isaiah 10. The prophet Isaiah says, Woe to all those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed. Otherness. And of course, racism is one of the most evil forms of otherness. And that too can have the three dimensions, the individual racism, where we can exclude or mock or overlook or mistreat those of a different skin color. Not just overt, but unconscious individual racism, where we have bias, generational bias and fear taught us from a young age against those of a different skin color. It has interpersonal racism, where whole communities can look down on different ethnicities. And of course, institutional racism has ravished 
the nation of my birth and my new nation of citizenship, this wonderful country of America. Where we've seen institutional racism in both countries of slavery, of segregation, disenfranchisement, the laws of Jim Crow, redlining, restrictive covenants that don't allow people of certain colors to live in different areas of our city. The sin of the fall breeds otherness, and so often that otherness reflects itself in racism, looking to prop up ourselves by looking down on others of a different skin color. The Bible has this theme throughout it showing us the devastation and the evil of this otherness in the guise of racism. But just as the world is deteriorating in its destructive habits of otherness, at the same time, God comes down and prophesies and promises that this will not have the last word for His people, for His world. Throughout the Old Testament, you see this otherness wreak havoc in genocide and cultural annihilation. At the same time, God comes in and says, I will intervene. I will not let this have the last word. And so he begins in Genesis chapter 12 with picking one man and saying, through you, I will build a nation that will bless all nations, that will reverse the curse of divide and separation. He even changed his name from Abram, the father is exalted, to Abraham, father of multitudes to reaffirm his promise that my promise is for all nations. And even when God gives Israel laws that make them different to other surrounding nations, it was always, we see in Deuteronomy, it was always for the sake of blessing and bringing them in to the love of God. Of course, the root of sin was still alive and well, even in the people of Israel. And therefore, something more drastic had to be done. And the prophets start to come and prophesy that there would be one day a king who would come not just to bring justice to the world, but bring justice by healing the root of the problem, which is the curse of sin in each of our hearts. And the prophets declared that when he heals our hearts, that's when the otherness can be reversed into unity once again. Even to such an extent that the prophet Isaiah said, one day God will say, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. This was the great promise of God, that he will come and defeat the curse of sin, reconcile us to God, and therefore begin the process of reconciliation between humanity. The prophets declared that one day the promise will be fulfilled and silence hung over the people of God until Jesus burst into the scene and declared in, in Mark's gospel, the kingdom is here. The king has arrived to bring his kingdom. God himself has come. And we see the story of God coming in the person of Jesus to deal on the cross with the root of the problem, to reconcile us back to God that we now find our hearts fulfilled in him so that we can stop fulfilling our hearts by being other, by, being, by pushing people down to make much of ourselves. 
And for any avoidance of doubt, Jesus declared in his ministry and modeled in his ministry, when I deal with the root of sin in your hearts, it's going to look like this in your relationships together. It's going to finally reverse the curse of otherness, the curse of racism. You see, Jesus was born into a town, into a place, into a city, into a nation of extreme otherness, not necessarily against people of a different color, but people of different ethnicity. It was known as Jews and Gentiles. John Stott writes, he says, It is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. Not that the Old Testament countenanced such a divide. It affirmed that God had a purpose for the Gentiles. By choosing and blessing the Jews, he intended to bless all the families of the earth. The tragedy was that Israel twisted this doctrine of of election into one of favoritism became filled with racial pride and hatred and despised the Gentiles as dogs and developed traditions that kept them apart. It was into this context where Jesus comes into a context of deep otherness between Jews and Gentiles that he declared, I am come to bring oneness where the world has divided. And Jesus got into a lot of trouble for this. Jesus went around Galilee healing Gentiles. He dined and stayed with Gentiles. He loved Gentiles. He rebuked the Jews for not embracing Gentiles. He overturned systemic racism that the Jews had set up in the temple courts to profit from the Gentiles. And then at the very end, he sent out his disciples to disciple all nations, including the Gentiles. There was no doubt that Jesus had come not just to deal with the root of sin, but to reverse the consequences of sin and bring back together humanity into its differentiated unity. After the cross, the implications of the resurrection to the Apostle Paul and to others was clear. And that's why in Paul's letters, almost all of his letters, he shows that the implications of what Jesus has done on the cross must bring people back together again. In 1 Corinthians, he said, look, we're all part of one body now. We're differentiated. Some of you are a hand, some of you are a foot, but we are one body. In Ephesians 2, he said, Christ is our peace, and he has ended the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles that we might now be one, one new humanity. And in Colossians 3, which then he repeats in Galatians 3, he says, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Jesus came to deal with the root of sin so that he could bring us back together again in oneness, in diversity, but as one family. And that's why at the very end of the biblical story in Revelation chapter 4 of restoration, where Jesus finishes his project to renew all things, to heal all things, or in his language, king, the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. The apostle John saw King Jesus on his throne, and it says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out in one loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
the great reverse of otherness has been completed. This is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the biblical theology. This is what the Bible says about what we're facing in our contemporary issues today. This is exactly what Jesus came to reverse. And it begins with his church to display the glory of differentiated unity, whether it be age, whether it be gender, whether it be socioeconomic status, whether it be what side of the rail tracks you're from, and most importantly for this nation in this time, my nation, the color of your skin, that we are differentiated unity, the one family of God. If that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, if that is the heart of Jesus Christ, if that's what Jesus Christ weeps over in his church and also in our nation, then what do we do? What do we do about this otherness, racism that we see and feel in our country? I want to look at five practices of the church of Jesus Christ. Five practices that we are to lean into as followers of Jesus. And the first practice is this. We are to preach the gospel. We are to preach the gospel. There have been so many theories over the last 18 months of what needs to happen to actually finally end racism, but the answer has been around for 2,000 years, and the answer is Jesus Christ. Only He can heal the infrastructure of our hearts, the infrastructure that says we're looking for value and meaning, and we find that by propping ourselves up, by pushing other people down. But when Jesus comes into our hearts by grace, we realize that we enter not by our own merit, but by grace because we need rescuing. And he fills our hearts with his value, his significance, his meaning, that we no longer have hungry hearts, that we weaponize against others, but actually our hearts are filled with his love that we no longer push others down, but we build them up. The gospel is the answer. The gospel is what we preach boldly to bring people into the love of Jesus Christ that heals our hearts, fills our hearts. That the only form of othering we now do is finding others to serve others to empower, and others to lift up. Secondly, we are to repent. We are to repent where we fall and keep falling into otherness, where we keep falling into thinking ourselves better than others for whatever reason, including the color of their skin. We are to repent before our God and repent before one another. There are three words that help me frame my own repentance. The first is complicit. Where have I been complicit in pushing others down because of their skin color? So often we think of this complicit, overt nature of something of the past. 
But as a pastor, I've seen and witnessed complicit nature today. We need to repent. We need to come before the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. But most of us, and all of us, need to repent for bias. It's one thing, Lord, where have I been complicit in this? But secondly, Lord, show me my bias. Show me my bias. This is, I was greatly helped in the, by the study we did of the third option with Pastor Miles McPherson, who asked the question, how do you see others who are different to us? And we all have conscious and unconscious bias toward those who are different. Where prejudices have been allowed to fester, where fears have been allowed to develop, where people of a different skin color subconsciously receive bias from us. I grew up in a context of bias. I remember growing up in the UK, I grew up in a community that was mostly Indian and Pakistani. Most of my friends were not white. And that had two implications for me. Firstly, I could see and experience with them, going out with them, the overt and the less overt bias of others toward them. And my friend Mohammed, Sanjay and Gupta, when their names would appear, they were left out of certain things. Well, my friend Shane, who had a heritage from the West Indies, and his skin color meant that sometimes we would try and go into places and he was subtly rejected, or sometimes overtly rejected from even going in. And I gotta say that sometimes we're very quick to say, I'm not a racist. And yet, in my own experience, this bias is alive in many hearts. I've had the privilege of being a pastor in America now since 2007. I saw bias in the UK, and I've seen bias in America. And I say that not to beat up anybody in particular. I say it firstly because I believe the Bible. And I believe the pollution of sin remains even though it's been defeated in our hearts. But I've had the privilege of sitting with people over the last 15 years. And I've had the privilege of actually them inviting me into their interior life. Not what they show, not what they say, but their interior life. That they felt safe to open up and say, yeah, this is how I truly feel. And we did that in the third option last year as well in our Bible study. And no one would say, I'm a racist. But people did open up and say, Gare, but I was taught to fear people of a different skin color. Gare, I was taught to cross the street when someone of a different skin color approached me. Gare, if I'm honest, if a resume comes across my desk with a name that is obviously from a community not of my skin color, I will pause. I will pause. 
yeah, I'm not too sure I really want someone, I don't want my son or my daughter to marry someone of a different skin color. These biases are alive and well. And this is not from me reading books. This is me pastoring. That's not everyone. But Pastor Miles in his book, The Third Option, says, we all need to repent and reflect and say, God, where is this bias in my own life? Maybe it's something I was just raised with. I had a friend who was raised with such fear from her parents that she is, oh, Lord, cleanse me of this fear which is the sin of otherness. I'm not, just so you know, a critical race theorist. I'm not saying that any one race has racism, whereas others don't. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says we're all affected by sin. We're all affected. And therefore, we all need to come before the Lord and say, Lord, show me my bias. And if you're struggling to see a bias in our culture, then do what Brian Stevenson says, get proximate with people of different color. Live with them, eat with them, journey with them. And then you'll suddenly see the subtle influences of bias in our culture today. And then thirdly, repent not just for complicitness, not just for bias, but repent for silence. Silence. It's so often that we, even in the church, have echoed the phrase of Cain that says, am I my brother's keeper? I didn't do this. And we've protected our own interests. We've protected our own status. We've protected our own life. At the cost of doing what Jesus did, speak up for the oppressed, speak up for those who are disadvantaged. And how often have we remained silent around people making inappropriate racial jokes? That fosters this bias. How long have we remained silent in our cultures where people do get overlooked because of the color of their skin, either for promotions or hiring? I've had to address my own life and say, Lord, where have I tried to live in an isolated bubble of, well, it's not me, as opposed to taking the posture of Jesus, who didn't look at the brokenness of humanity and look at his father and say, hey, it's not my fault. But the posture of Jesus himself, who though he was sinless, became sin that he entered into the darkness, not of his own creation, but he entered in to rescue those, rescue you and me from the pain of oppression. Thirdly, what do we do as the church? Thirdly, mission. We are to act. We are not just to preach the gospel, but demonstrate it. We are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are salt and light in our city that we are to go out and show as Jesus did, this is the fruit when sin is defeated. This is the fruit of that which is differentiated unity that we start to come together again in the glorious diversity of God. That we are to fight racism 
wherever we see it, individual, interpersonal, and institutional. We are not just to be passive and go, well, I'll deal with my issues. No, we are to deal with issues of society, to be proactive. It's our vocation as the church to echo the diversity of the Godhead. Jesus said, when you love one another, they will know that I am real. Now that's different to when you love each other because you, you love each other. You're, you have similar interests, similar likes, similar backgrounds. No, he's saying when you love each other across the divisions of society, that's when they know, oh my word, Jesus must be real. That we are to be proactively against racism and all forms of otherness. That's why about a year and a half ago, I said, I saw this phrase that someone used and I thought, oh yeah, I like that. We should be anti-racist, not just like, just I'm not a racist, we should be anti it. And then, you know, I got into trouble for that because apparently I then learned that was attached to some ideology in a book and et cetera, et cetera. And people kind of left the church because I had said once the phrase anti-racist, out of my heart of being like Jesus, we should be going against this. And so I, I got to say, I paused at that point and said, holy smokes, guys, if I say language that actually just reflects the heart of God and sometimes is co-opted by a different political agenda, um, don't assume I mean that political agenda. Come email me. And some people did, which is awesome. Come to me and say, hey, do you mean this by that? No, I mean that God weeps over injustice, weeps over otherness, weeps over racism, and he wept so much, he sent his own son to die for it, and just as he is proactive, we should be proactive. That's what I mean. It's a shame, isn't it, when certain words are co-opted by certain political ideologies that really good biblical words can't be used anymore. And I get it, words matter, and you know, things like social justice. I believe justice is social. I believe that justice is God's public love on display. And one of the ways that is on display is in our social structures, that we love one another. So I've said social justice all my life, I've said social justice, to represent one dimension of justice. And so when you hear me say that, don't, don't think I am repeating an ideology that is more rooted in Marxism rather than opposed to the kingdom of God. Just for clarity, I'm not a Marxist. <laughs> but I'm not going to let political ideology steal the gospel from me. Which is the justice has a public face. The justice of God has a public face. And it has social implications. We are to be proactive. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. It starts in the church because it's the diversity of the church that displays the manifold wisdom of God, Ephesians 3. That word manifold is itself the very diversity. It was referred to the technicolor coat, the multicolor coat of Joseph. And it's when we represent the multicolors of God's beautiful creation in the church, then we display the beautiful, diverse glory of Jesus Christ and the Godhead. When we display the beautiful diversity of age and gender, of economic status and the color of our skin, the world goes, oh my word, what, how can you do this? 
when all the world has tried for centuries but failed. You must have something we don't. It's the Jesus, the King Jesus, who created us in His image of the Godhead. That's who we have. We start with the church, but we go out into society. We go out, as Jesus did, into culture to bring justice and racial injustice where we see it. Individually. We come against individuals who are acting in a racist manner with love and humility, not with shame and embarrassment, but with inviting them into healing into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Into interpersonal, where the world divides communities and our city has been ravaged by interpersonal divisions through redlining and restrictive covenants. That we lean into our city and we say we want to bring healing where the last 100 years has brought division and institutional. We are to be against institutional racism. Now, what do I mean by that? I hear many people checking out right now. What I mean by that is simply this. The country of my birth, and now my new country, has had centuries of institutional racism. Slavery. Jim Crow, etc., etc. Redlining, restrictive covenants. Otherness reflected through color of skin. Praise the Lord, those laws were changed. And the legal foundation for systemic racism was reversed. Civil rights movement, restrictive covenants were repealed by the suit. Supreme Court in the 60s and the 70s, etc., etc. But the legacy of hundreds of years of institutional racism will take more than a few decades to overcome. It will take more than a few decades to heal the economic, emotional, communal, and societal pain of hundreds of years of institutional racism. We are still wrestling with the residue of the laws of the past. And it's up to all of us to enter in and say, what hundreds of years sought to destroy, we will hold your hand, and if it takes hundreds of years to restore, we will do that. People often go, well, we're all born equal. We're all born with the same privileges and rights. Under the law, that may be true, but we're not born into equal opportunity. Now, I say that because we all know that on an individual level. When we do emotionally healthy spirituality, we do something called the genogram, which is trace your family of origin back to your parents, back to their parents. And you start to realize when you come into your genogram, your history, your family tree, and go, oh my word, there are generational cycles in my family. That I am still living out the pain of my parents. I'm still living out the pain of my parents' community. I've adopted worldviews and postures that reflect 
my parents and my community. We all know that. Well, if that's the case on an individual level with our parents, imagine whole communities of color with 300 years of abuse and torture and lynching. How much they are living out of the pain of the past. And therefore, how much we all say to God. We don't say, God, am I my brother's keeper? We all go in as Jesus did to go to the Samaritan woman at the well, to go to the Samaritan on the side of the road and say, absolutely, this is what it means for me as a follower of Jesus to enter into this pain, enter into this cycle, enter into this destruction and do what I can to empower, to lift up, to heal. Not in some hierarchical supremacist kind of benevolence, but in humility, in love, to lift up. The pain of our past is alive today. We live that in our city of Santa Monica. So our, we believe we're a church for the whole city of Los Angeles, not just for Santa Monica. And therefore, we partner with churches across the city of color because I am brutally aware that Santa Monica, and particularly our region in Santa Monica, where this church resides, is a predominantly white community. And on one hand, I go, Lord, it's really hard for us to be a diverse community because we're predominantly white. But my response to that is not, oh, well, that's just reality. My response to that is, Lord, save us because the whiteness of our community has been based on institutional racism, redlining and restrictive covenants. And the history of our city has been scarred in community divisions, which don't mean, therefore, as followers of Jesus, we just live into those divisions. I'm not talking any kind of economic repatriation or Marxist theory right now. I'm just saying my heart then bleeds for the city of God. What sin has divided into ethnic silos, the community of God has to overcome. And we will love our community, but we will love our whole city. And we were proactive to say, yes, we inherit the scars and the wounds of the past. But the power of Jesus Christ is greater than the power of the past. And we will partner and hold hands with churches across the city and love them and serve them, do mission together. And say, though we're not going to start moving homes and though we're not going to start kind of repatriating and all those things that people say, I don't believe that is necessarily biblical, but we will do is be family, is love one another, serve one another, and honor one another across our city. And I pray that our church more and more reflects the beautiful diversity of our Godhead, of different age, different skin color, different economic status. Because I don't know how we will display the glory of God without diversity. And then fourthly, we ought to pray. Coming into land now, we ought to pray. The disciples overheard Jesus's, Jesus praying to his Father in John 17. And Jesus' prayer was this, I pray that they may be one as we are one. 
so that the whole world may believe. What a prayer. And that is our prayer too. And therefore, we pray against racism and the spiritual forces behind it. Our fight is not against flesh and blood only, but against the principalities and powers of this dark world. There is demonic activity at hand to keep us divided. We will pray against that. But we will also pray to be filled with His Holy Spirit. Because we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit to fill us, to overflow our love to one another, to overcome the powers of division and racism and otherness in our culture. But finally and fifthly, we have to practice hope. Hope. That what the enemy and the flesh seeks to devour and destroy, Jesus Christ breathes new hope. He dealt with the curse of sin on the cross, that therefore light now is always greater than the darkness. When John had a vision of Jesus in Revelation, at the end of days, it didn't say Jesus was saying, behold, don't worry, hang on, I will make all things new. He says, right now, in your city, in your church, in your culture, I am making things new. He comes into you and me, he births us in this time of great awakening to the injustices of our society. He says, I brought, brought you here to the city for such a time as this, that you may be salt and light, that you may bring healing and love across the divisions of racial injustice, and you may bring the glory of Jesus to bear in our city through differentiated unity, to be one new humanity. You see, on the cross and in the resurrection, there was a fatal death blow given to racism. And it's time for the church not to perpetuate otherness, but it's time for the church to step into our vocation, to step into our calling, to step into the story of Jesus by the power of the gospel, to repent, the power of, uh, the, power of the gospel to be filled with His Holy Spirit and to go out and bring unity to go out and fight injustice, to go out and heal the scars that our nation carry, to go out and empower those who've been oppressed, to go out and love others as He has loved us. There will be a day where we all sit around the throne and stand of our different colors and praise King Jesus together, arm in arm. There will be a day when there'll be no more racism, no more racial injustice, no more oppression, no more times when friends of mine, Asian and African American right now, tell me, yeah, I'm afraid to go out for a walk at night. There will be a time when darkness will finally be utterly defeated. But I'm not going to wait for that time. Because Jesus has given me a call. He's given you a call to be His hands and His feet. To go into the darkness and bring justice and love. And to be a signpost of the coming kingdom that in Jesus... We are one family. 
And so long as I'm the pastor of this church, and I would suggest so long as Jesus is on the throne, that is our mission. That's at the heart of the gospel. The differentiated unity of the family of God. Let's stand together.